What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zen nicotine pouches deliver nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime, which means Zen pairs well with you, your personality, your schedule, and your spontaneity. Zen fits easily into your bag, pocket, and into your life because it's smoke free, hands free, and hassle free. So the only person who will know you have a Zen pouch in is you. Visit Zinn.com or head to your local convenience store today to find your Zinn. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Pause for a big thank you to our partner making today's program possible. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. Amazing. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, your exercise, and medication decisions. All those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and a lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com compatibility. Thanks, Dexcom, for being our partner. Hi, everyone. I'm retired detective Karen Smith, the host of Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. Follow my journey as I work to solve the 87-year-old cold case murder of my own great uncle. Download all of the episodes at Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders, on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening. So long, farewell to what you thought would go so well. You can hold on like hell, but it doesn't matter. It was stolen out of his office, but he was locked inside his office. So how did that happen? If they were going to dump him in the creek, why did they drag him across the road? Did they drive that car all over creation with a missing windshield? There is some question about whether it was an inside job. How could I have slept through that? How could I have not heard gunshots? Nobody believed that. <laughs> that he could have slept through that. Why was Emery Smith taken from the scene of the crime? Was he kidnapped or was he in on it? 
Welcome back to Shattered Souls, The Car Barn Murders. I'm Karen Smith. This is Episode 3. This podcast may contain graphic language and is not suitable for children. Previously on The Car Barn Murders. My great-uncle Emery Smith and his co-worker James Mitchell were both murdered on Monday morning, January 21, 1935. Montgomery County detectives Theodore Volton and Leroy Rogers began compiling an extended investigation with the assistance of D.C. Metropolitan Detective Frank Brass and Baltimore Detective Stuart Deal. My Uncle Emery was shot four times in the head and his body was found floating in Rock Creek. The forensic analysis of a milk bottle and broken glass pieces found at the Rock Creek Bridge found no fingerprints and those leads got left by the wayside. The evidence was destroyed in the years since the murders, so there's no possibility of forensic testing with modern technology. Two suspicious cars with blood, bullet holes, and broken glass were stopped, then released after a brief investigation. I spoke with retired Montgomery County Detective Jack Toomey, who said that he worked on the car barn case in the 1970s and 80s, and he located an eyewitness to the crime, Ernest Carter, in 1977. Carter had never spoken about it to anyone. Jack Toomey typed a report of his findings regarding Ernest Carter's statement, and he placed it into the dusty case file, which he now kept in his patrol car. After he learned about the murders and realized the case was unsolved, he asked the inspector for permission to work on it in his spare time. The inspector told him that was fine, as long as it didn't interfere with his active cases. This is Jack Toomey's verbatim report from 1977 and his encounter with Ernest Carter. Carter said that he'd been seven years old at the time and had been waiting for a streetcar at the hot dog stand across the street from the car barn office. He was waiting for a streetcar to take him to his grandfather's farm that was in Northeast Washington. Carter recalled that it was very late at night. He said that he suddenly heard shots and he hid behind the hot dog stand. Then he saw two men run out of the office and get into a green Buick that was driven by a third man. The car then went north toward Kensington. The next day, his mother told him that there had been a murder, but he never told the police what he saw because he didn't think they would believe a seven-year-old boy. He doesn't recall what the men looked like, but he does recall the green Buick. A green Buick had been stolen on Sunday night from the area of 15th and Irving Streets in DC, and it hadn't been found anywhere. The getaway car was never reported in the papers, so there's no way that Ernest Carter could have known that the Buick was the only vehicle never recovered. Ernest Carter's comment about hiding behind a hot dog stand was interesting. There was a hot dog stand, Dan's, at Chevy Chase Lake, and it was a popular place in the summer because of its proximity to the community pool. When I first read about Carter's mention of Dan's, my brain autopiloted to a New York-esque handcart, but I was completely off base. Dan's was a permanent pavilion type building and I found a photograph online. I had to place it into the scene to make sure that Ernest Carter's line of sight wasn't obscured and that he could actually see the front of the ticket office from that vantage point. I didn't distrust what Ernest Carter told Jack Toomey, but an eyewitness account, even 40 years after the fact, is a crucial piece of any investigation that needs really careful scrutiny. I pulled additional photographs of the ticket office, the car barn, and the pool from the Chevy Chase Historical Society's website archive. 
There weren't any photographs of all the structures together, but there was one structure that was present in all of them, the water tower. Using the water tower as a landmark, I could place Dan's hot dog stand on the same side of Connecticut Avenue as the car barn, just to the south of it, almost directly across the street from the ticket office. Placing Ernest Carter at that hot dog stand, he would have had a direct line of sight to the front of the ticket office when he heard the gunshots and saw two men run out of the front door. The green Buick would have been right in front of him on Connecticut Avenue when it made that U-turn and went north. Carter's line of sight would have been lost after the vehicle continued toward the car barn because the barn and the water tower would have been in his way. Every witness also said that it was really foggy that morning with low visibility. Ernest Carter said that he was scared and he hid behind the hot dog counter so he may not have seen the rest of the crime that involved my Uncle Emery. As far as Ernest Carter's memory after 40 years, I can imagine that witnessing a violent crime as a seven-year-old child would imprint pretty strongly on his memory. Learning that he witnessed suspects fleeing a murder that became headline news for weeks would become a permanent fixture in his mind. I have no doubt that his statement was accurate and he was telling the truth. I also believe that he was incredibly relieved to offload that secret that he'd kept to himself for so long to a kind and understanding officer like Jack Toomey who would listen to him and take him seriously. An all-points bulletin was sent to the officers and detectives in the surrounding districts to check the area garages and warehouses for a vehicle with broken glass, bullet holes, and bloodstains just in case the car used in the murders had been secreted away. Local cleaning establishments were also notified to be on the lookout for bloodstained clothes that were brought in. Getting back to the reconstruction of the moments of the crime, sometimes there are questions that you have to ask that are really difficult. I've tried hard to keep my personal bias out of this case since my great uncle was one of the victims and my family carried that burden for decades, but there are questions about this case that are really hard to understand and things that don't make sense within the big picture. The facts are that Emery Smith was shot four times in the head, at least one of them at very close range. His body was transported one mile north of the car barn and dumped from the northwest side of Connecticut Avenue at the bridge over Rock Creek. The biggest question I have is why? Why would the suspects bother to do that? The first answer I came up with was that they hid his body in order to buy time to get away. To kill Emery Smith openly on Connecticut Avenue where he would be instantly found by anyone arriving for work or simply driving by would hasten the search for the suspects. James Mitchell's body was at least hidden from view inside the ticket office and he might not be discovered until well after the suspects were gone. But does that theory really make sense? It took time to drag Emery Smith's body into the water and it put the suspects into a position to be discovered at the bridge. Were they just disorganized and panicked? This really didn't seem like the work of organized killers, more like small-time criminals who let the robbery get out of hand. And I also have more questions about the location at the bridge. Did they use the headlights of the car to see where they were going? There were no streetlights on that part of Connecticut Avenue in 1935. Where was the car parked and which direction was it facing? How did those broken glass pieces end up in the snow? When was my Uncle Emery actually killed? Outside of the car barn? In the vehicle on the way to the bridge? Or at the bridge after they stopped? 
Did the detectives inadvertently miss any bloodstains at the scene outside of the ticket office? Was it obscured by the slush and mud or by passing cars before they got there? I tried to piece this together using the information from the witnesses and the forensic evidence left on my Uncle Emery's body. The one ear witness, Charles Smallwood, a worker from the T.W. Perry Coal Company down the street, said that he was in the basement stoking the furnace at about 4.35 in the morning when he heard shouting and gunshots from the area across the street. Was that the moment that Emery was killed? The T.W. Perry Coal Company was about 75 yards north of the ticket office, so it seems doubtful in my mind that Charles Smallwood could have heard gunshots from James Mitchell's murder over that large of a distance from a basement with a furnace roaring in the background. Ernest Carter, the eyewitness, reported hearing gunshots, shouting, and then saw two men run out of the office and flee northbound on Connecticut Avenue, but he didn't report hearing a second set of gunshots at the car barn. There was one set of shoe prints at the car barn that abruptly stopped at Connecticut Avenue. They were just south of the T.W. Perry Coal Company. Was my Uncle Emery shot and killed right there on Connecticut Avenue? Did Charles Smallwood hear my Uncle Emery's murder instead of James Mitchell's at the office? If my uncle was killed right there, how can I account for the broken glass in the snow at the bridge? Did the pieces just fall out of the rubber molding when the door was open to get his body out? Did an elbow or shoulder knock the shattered pieces loose? And why would they drag my uncle's body all the way down the embankment and chance getting caught by a passing car? My Uncle Emery had three gunshots in a tight grouping, at least one of them at close range. A fourth gunshot was near the top of his head. His upper denture was missing. Was all of that evidence of a struggle inside the car as they drove toward the bridge? Was he kidnapped at gunpoint, or did the car stop? And did my uncle get inside it on his own? I had to consider that one or more of the suspects knew my Uncle Emery. As painful as this possibility is to admit, I have to front-run it if I'm doing my job the right way. Could my Uncle Emery have been in on it? Could he have used the key found in his pocket to unlock the door to the ticket office before going back to the car barn to punch his time clock card at 423? Would he have any motivation to do such a thing? What if he was told that it would just be a quick one-off robbery with the promise that no one would get hurt, but then the suspects killed James Mitchell and they got into a fight with my Uncle Emery as a result and then they killed him too. Now in my mind, and admittedly I have a bias, my Uncle Emery was not an accomplice, he was a victim. But I also have to admit that there are holes in all of the theories I've come up with so far. But my contention about his innocence does have evidence to back it up. Uncle Emery and his second wife, Edith, were doing fine financially. They lived next door to my grandfather in a middle-class home. When Edith's first husband died in the mid-1920s, he left her some insurance money. In 1938, three years after the murders, Aunt Edith secured an attorney. She wanted to force her derelict brother to pay back $200 that he borrowed from her all the way back in 1925 when her first husband died. In a detailed letter from Edith's attorney, her brother told Edith that he wouldn't pay her back. He basically told his sister, tough shit, you can't get blood out of a turnip. 
her brother was headed to bankruptcy court. Edith wanted to be present at the hearing to tell the judge her information and get her money back with interest with a court order. And before you think Edith was being petty, $200 in 1938 was the equivalent of about four grand today. If somebody borrowed that from you with a promise to pay it back and then told you tough shit a decade later, wouldn't you be just a little pissed off? I would. In the letter from the attorney, Edith stated that her brother had made the comment that he would never get insurance on himself, so in the event that his wife cashed it in, another man wouldn't have access to the money. Oh, this guy sounded like a real D-bag. Aunt Edith countered that statement and said her brother was the only person to ever ask about the money and that Emery Smith never asked about it. When I read that letter the first time, I didn't put much weight on it since it seemed like an inner family squabble that had no bearing on the murders. But now, after considering the possibility of my uncle's complicity, I put a lot of weight on it because it tells me about my uncle Emery's character. Aunt Edith said that my uncle never asked about that insurance money. If Emery was a money grubber, I have no doubt that Edith would have said as much to her attorney, but she didn't. She said that her brother was the only person to ever ask about that money. If Uncle Emery was desperate for cash, he had a large family that would have gladly helped him out. He lived next door to my grandfather, and two of my other great uncles also worked for Capital Transit. He had plenty of people around who would have given him a financial hand if he needed it. He was a 15-year employee of the company, and he made a higher salary than most of the others just by virtue of his seniority. There just isn't a motive for my Uncle Emery to be involved in the robbery. It was his own workplace. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain. And now that I've made the argument for my great-uncle, I have to make the counter-argument. The only people who were definitively present during the robbery and murders were the suspects, James Mitchell, Emery Smith, and Francis Gregory, the man supposedly sleeping on the bench in the trainman's room. Somebody unlocked the front door after the evening clerk, John Stout, left the office at 3.40 in the morning to go home. Is it possible that Emery Smith used the key found in his pocket to unlock that door? Yeah, that's possible. Is it possible that Francis Gregory unlocked the door before going into the trainman's room to sleep? Also possible. Going back to the ticket office witnesses, Montgomery County State Attorney James Pugh did some investigating of his own, and he brought several people into his office for a follow-up interview. There were some holes that James Pugh wanted to hem up, and the first person he talked to was Parker Hanna, the conductor who found James Mitchell's body. In his initial statement, Parker Hanna said that the front door was unlocked when he reported for work at around 5.10 in the morning. Hannah and two other employees found Francis Gregory inside the trainman's room asleep on a bench. The door to that room was also unlocked. Hannah said that when Gregory was informed of the murder, he jumped up from the bench and ran out of the rear door into the snow in his socks. He said he was sure that Francis Gregory had his coat and his shoes off. Hannah said that Linwood Jones, another employee, ran after Francis Gregory and brought him back into the office. Parker Hanna also said, quote, I might mention that the door leading to the trainman's room in the back of the ticket office was unlocked. This door usually was locked by the ticket office man, Mitchell. 
State Attorney James Pugh took Parker Hanna back to the ticket office to try to refresh his memory, and they did a walkthrough. Parker Hanna said that every single door inside of the ticket office was unlocked, and in a new twist, he added that the windows in the locker room on the north side of the office were also unlocked. There were fresh mud tracks on the windowsill, and the screen was broken and laying outside on the ground. He said there were one man's tracks, fresh in the snow, outside of that window. Parker Hanna added that Francis Gregory's coat was laying on a table in the middle of the room. Without prompting, Parker Hanna also said that he had known Francis Gregory for a long time, that Gregory wasn't a drinker, and that Gregory had slept at the office before. He said Gregory owned a 1931 Ford sedan, and he was positive that Gregory's car was not parked outside of the office on the night of the murders. State Attorney Pugh asked Hannah about the floor around Gregory's location on the bench. Hannah said that he didn't notice if the floor was wet or not because it was stained a dark brown, but he did say that Gregory's shoes were black and low-cut. James Pugh made a notation at the bottom of Parker Hannah's statement in parentheses. He was very impressed by Gregory's running out of the office when addressed of Mitchell's murder, believes in his innocence, although I didn't assume an attitude of suspicion about Gregory. Parker Hanna was not the only employee to give a follow-up statement to State Attorney Pugh. John Stout, the evening clerk, was also brought back in to be re-interviewed. In his initial statement, John Stout said that he left the office at 3.40 and that James Mitchell bolted the front door behind him. On his way home, he saw a car on the east side of Connecticut Avenue facing north, about a half mile south of the ticket office. He said the driver was a white man and he saw three people inside of that car. In his subsequent statement, he said that at around 2.05 in the morning, after the last trolley crew left the office, James Mitchell locked the front door and went to the back of the office and locked all of the doors. John Stout said that when he went into the trainman's room at 3 o'clock, the door to that room was unlocked, but he had to unbolt the back door that led to the porch to get the empty money bag. When he came back inside, he rebolted that door shut. He didn't have a reason to try the door between the trainman's room and the locker room, but he assumed that James Mitchell had locked it and he added that the locker room had no radiator, and that door was kept locked to keep the cold air out. John Stout said that he'd thought long and hard about Francis Gregory, and said that he was absolutely sure that he would take an oath that Francis Gregory had his shoes on when he saw him on the bench at 3 o'clock. Gregory had his coat pulled over him, and it was not on a table in the middle of the room. Francis Gregory had been employed at the Chevy Chase office for less than a year at that point. He was a trolley conductor, and he'd spent the night inside of the ticket office before since he would work the late shift and then turn around and work the early morning shift. He was 23 years old in 1935, and he lived on Evart Street in Washington, D.C. with his mother, Cora. Francis Gregory was interviewed on January 22, 1935, by Detective Theodore Volton and D.C. Metro Detective Frank Brass. Francis Gregory talked about taking trolleys back and forth to the main office car barn at 36th and M Street in Georgetown. He got back from his final run at about 1.30 in the morning. He went into the trainman's room to take a leak and put his coat down on a bench to go to sleep. 
He heard the last trolley crew enter the office at 1.54 in the morning and said that the motorman on that last run told Gregory that he'd better take off his overshoes or his feet wouldn't be worth a damn the next day. The motorman pulled off Gregory's overshoes, meaning his galoshes, and he went to sleep. Gregory said that at some point during the night he got up. He was hot because he said that my Uncle Emery fixed the fire, so he opened two windows on the Columbia Country Club side the south side of the building. During his interview, Francis Gregory told detectives Volton and Brass that, quote, there was a window in the ventilator where a man could get in or they might could come in through the roof. Armed robbers do not enter buildings through window ventilators or through the roof. Only one time have I ever dealt with furtive entry of a building through a roof and it was committed by an organized safe-cracking burglary ring Francis Gregory was on a bench in the trainman's room that was positioned next to the wall to the money cage where James Mitchell was murdered. Four gunshots were fired. Francis Gregory told everyone that he slept through the whole thing. I've dealt with obfuscation by witnesses and suspects and even victims thousands of times before, and I concluded that Francis Gregory was full of it. After the car barn murder story hit the headlines of the morning papers, the detectives were getting phone calls and leads as fast as they could run them down. A woman called in and said that she'd found some suspicious items on the street by her home in Kensington. She reported that there were several bloody handkerchiefs and a man's vest with blood on it. The detectives went to her house and she gave them the items, which turned out to be a wet maroon colored vest and just some old rags. There was no evidence of blood on any of them. It was a bum lead, the first of many. Washington, D.C. didn't have a shortage of robberies at gunpoint, and the detectives put feelers out to the boots on the ground to see if any previous robberies matched the modus operandi of the Carbon case. They all suspected that this was the work of locals rather than an organized gang killing. And that said, it's my contention that two suspects entered the Chevy Chase Lake office via the unlocked front door and got the jump on James Mitchell as he worked alone and forced him to unlock the cage door at gunpoint. That was not just an educated guess. A few months before the murders, on August 26, 1934, at about 3.30 in the morning, there was an attempt to rob the Brightwood ticket office, located on Georgia Avenue in D.C., Two suspects entered the front door and demanded that the night clerk, a man named Wilbur Balderson, open the cage door at gunpoint. Balderson didn't open that door, and instead he jumped into a steel cabinet to hide, likely saving his own life in the process. That thwarted the robbery, and the suspects fled, but not before Balderson could get a vague description to give to the police. About an hour and a half later, a man named Edwin O'Connell was arrested based on that description. A white man, about 30 years old, 5 feet 9, 160 pounds, dark hair wearing a dark colored suit. That described about half the men in the district, but the cops went with it. After Edwin O'Connell was arrested, his father contacted the detectives and said that his son had recently been released from St. Elizabeth's Psychiatric Hospital. After a little more investigation, the detectives found out that Edwin O'Connell had hooked up with two other former patients 
both of whom had a penchant for robbery and murder. If you have information about the Car Barn murders, go to the Shattered Souls Facebook page and leave me a message. Opening music by Sam Johnson at samjohnsonlive.com. Shattered Souls is produced by Karen Smith and Angel Heart Productions. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.